I want to. Let me see if this this is my this is how I normally talk. Is this normal? Is this hearable? Can you hear? Bill, you all right? Well, it is taped on, but it's not good. All right. Okay, so we have to tape more. Okay. <laughs> That's what they used to do with spit curls. What a bad, what a bad name that is. Especially because that's what it meant. How's <laughs> that? Good. Is that better? All right, we'll see. So every single thing is a Dharma story. I was thinking this morning. Um, when I went to bed last night, uh, uh, my husband said, I noticed on the news that there's a hurricane coming towards Florida on the inside side, on the Pensacola side. And I realized we have good friends who live in, in uh, Tallahassee. So uh, one of the things that uh, I thought about was that... Uh, Oh, it's funny how things come out of your memory, but the mind stores things, the brain stores things in a funny way. I thought to myself, I remember uh, in the first days of CNN, which is a long time ago, probably uh, 25, 30 years ago, something like that, I remember uh, watching one day and... uh, feeling sort of uh, laughing when they came to a commercial break and they said... um, don't go anywhere. Stay tuned uh, because we'll be right back with the latest news about Hurricane Dan in the Caribbean. And I remember thinking to myself, that, uh, you know, that's so ridiculous. It's in the Caribbean. Why should I stay tuned here? Hurricane Dan is in the Caribbean. It doesn't have anything to do with me. Look at that. And I, I thought some sort of acerbic thought about the ways that people get beguiled into staying glued to their radio or their television, not me, because I understand it's a hype. Anyway, last night I started to think about how things are in Tallahassee. I'm not there. And this morning, after five days of a strict ban of television fasting, I want to say I'm still on that ban. I broke the ban not to see any news, because I decided it's just not good for me. I'll read the newspaper every single day. I decide I'll turn it on and I will immediately turn on the weather channel because that's what I really wanted to see. Where is the weather and how is the weather in Tallahassee? And you see it's coming up that side and the dire predictions about what it's going to be. It could be a story now about how dire all the weather things are coming up these days. But I watch it and it's not really aimed directly at Tallahassee. But I call my friends, because it's three hours later there, and it's all right. And one of my friends is um, (coughs) somewhat disabled, so... And they're both old, and I don't know how fast they could get out of where they have to be. Anyway, I call them, I say, how are you? And they say, we're okay. They said, the skies are gray and the winds are up a little bit, but it's not supposed to come near here. We'll probably be okay. And say, do you have a generator? No, we don't have a generator, but we have enough food to get through, and we'll probably be okay. And it, it, what it served 
was, uh, I'm able to say, they said, I'm so happy that you called. It's terrific moves us that from California you're thinking of us. I said, well, of course. And so then I love you, I love you, and we hang up. And I think of another time when I was young and still thinking kind of, uh, uh, what do I call these uh, kind of thoughts? Like, uh, <laughs> like I'm smarter than you are, some, some sort of immature, that's it, that's it, immature thoughts. Like, I'm not going to get snookered in by watching because I don't live in Florida. Now I'm really watching. Then I thought my mother-in-law, they said the storm is not near us. I said, okay. My mother-in-law used to call me early in the morning when we were living in California, newly, and she was living in New Jersey. So this has got to be 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And she'd call very early in the morning and I'd pick up the phone and she'd say, sweetheart, are you all right? And I'd say, yes, mother, I'm fine. Why would I not be all right? She said, I heard on the news that there's an earthquake in California. I'd say, mother, California is a very big place. You know, that we're not anywhere near any earthquake. And I used to think, oh, what a silly person. Now I'm thinking to myself, just 30 seconds before I came in, the, the thing about it is it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of saying to people, I thought of you and I love you and I care about what you are. And it doesn't matter. I thought about my original kind of thought when they say, stay tuned to Hurricane Dan. And I said, well, pff, I don't know anybody in, in, the, in, the, in the wake of Hurricane Dan, but other people do. Other people are there all the time right now, even if this hurricane does not hit my friends in Gainesville. There are hurricanes in the world somewhere else hitting other people. And it's a moment, really, it's like a mindfulness bell. People have watches that remind them to have a moment that uh, of thinking uh, kind thoughts for people all over the world. So that's I'm having a moment. Any moment could be. Wherever there's an earthquake in the world, may people be solaced, may they be saved. Wherever there's trouble in the world, somewhere in this moment, people are having trouble. All kinds of earthquakes and tsunamis and big rainstorms and droughts and epidemics and famines. And that really a way of waking up the mind, not to belabor it with, it's hard to be alive, but just kind wishes for the world. Because I can't stop a hurricane by a good wish, but I can warm my heart by thinking about how I love people and that I wish that the people I know are well. And at the same time, why not wish that the people I don't know are also well? It doesn't take any extra energy. It's an unlimited source of well-wishing. I surprised myself by what I all just said. Honestly, I was in the restroom thinking, you know, it was good that I called them this morning. And look what it bloomed into that whole discourse. I didn't think it would. I didn't know it would. <laughs> if I thought about it. <laughs> no, but that's really the message. The message is, uh, this, uh, and Tony's going to be here in a little while to continue the message. Then we're going to find out. All right, I first, I'm going to tell you about Tony. Then we'll find out who is new here. Tony Bernhardt and her husband, Tony Bernhardt, which sounds like the beginning of a joke, but in fact, they are both Tony Bernhardt. They were both 
well, I think he's Anthony, and I think she's Antoinette. They met in college. They met, and they became boyfriend and girlfriend, and now it's uh, probably at least 50-some years later. Um, And uh, 15 years ago, uh, Tony, the girl, uh, took ill, she'll tell you about it when she's here, quite suddenly, with what is generally called in the category of chronic uh, fatigue syndrome, and uh, she took ill from one day to the next. I'll let her tell you that. And hasn't gotten better. And it's at probably 15 years now. And during which time she's written a book called How to Be Sick. And uh, another book called um, How to Wake Up. And another book called I mean, How to Be Sick, How to Wake Up. She's written a new book, which is the revised and updated edition of How to Be Sick. And it really is. When I heard, when I, when she told me about it, I, you know, I, I really have such a, um, poorly repressed, uh, (laughs) mocking mechanism. I've already mocked CNN and mocked my mother-in-law. I'm about to mock, um, it says new and updated. When I was growing up, the uh, the uh, uh, commercials for detergent would say, "This is not the old Tide. This is the new and improved Tide detergent. This is a new, updated, much bigger book by Tony, and it's wonderful. Uh, a Buddhist-inspired guide for the chronically ill and their caretakers. And Tony's going to be here to talk with us about it." And to talk about how it is to be chronically sick. Uh, I'll let her talk about it when she gets here. She's coming later. Um, they, they live in Davis, so it's an hour's trip, hour and a half at the least. And um, this is one of the few book appearances that she's going to make because it's already too hard just to get in the car and drive here. She won't drive. Tony will drive her. It's already too exhausting for her body to be in the car that long. So she'll come just before 11. And uh, the reason she comes here is, first of all, we're old friends from before she was sick. And uh, second of all, because her books have very much to do with the way her Dharma practice has informed her ability to live graciously with an ongoing and incurable disease. Um, As I was thinking about it, working up towards today and looking forward to it, I was thinking, you know, in in a certain sense, we all have an incurable disease called life. Um, Some, one of my friends recently, I, I was talking about that we all have a disease called life, and it's a, it's a terminal illness, that disease that we all have. Although we don't like to think about it as being a terminal illness, but it is for everybody. And then somebody with a very quick wit said it's a sexually transmitted <laughs> terminal illness. So, <laughs> uh, for everybody. Which, when you think about it, it is. <laughs> 
but it never occurs to you to think about it that way. Um, but we mostly think about illnesses as things we, okay, we got, have an illness and maybe we die from that illness quite soon. Or we have an illness and we're incapacitated for a while and then we get better from it. So we had the illness, but we get better. We continue with the illness called life or the experience called life, but that illness is finished. But there's an enormous, there are an enormous number of people who are living with an illness or an incapacity that isn't going to go away, isn't going to get better. And uh, Tony knows some figures of that. Since since she's written her book, she has become very widely known in the community of people with uh, not curable, persistent, chronic illnesses. If you think about the numbers of people who have diabetes, who can't go away from their diabetes medicines, can't not be testing their sugar. People with ongoing not immediately fatal diseases and the way in which they had a life before they had it and now they have a life with it. And the challenge that it poses. So I'll leave all of that to, um, to, to Tony when she comes. And in the meantime, we'll uh, first of all find out who is here who has never been here before. So, you know what? How would it be if we haven't done this before? If you haven't been here before, stand up. Then we'll be sure to see you. And everybody will see you. Okay, this is good. Everybody will see you. And looks like we have a whole contingent. Did you all come together? (laughs) That last group of people? Are you all playing hooky from that retreat that's up there? <laughs> no, I'm happy that you're there. Uh, you can, Once you say your name and where you came from, you can sit back down. Okay, who are you? I'm Stephanie, and um, I was actually just camping up the road, and I happened to stop in. Oh, that's great. I really like people to stop by. Welcome, Stephanie. I'm very happy that you're here. Uh, when you when after class, Jennifer, if you're not in a hurry, go and walk around and look around. Welcome. Come again. Okay. Once you do, you can sit down. There you go. I'm Alan from Cordillera, and it's good to see you again, Sylvia. The same. The same. I'm Judith from Chicago with my sister Susie from San Francisco. I'm glad you're here. That was a very amiable of you. <laughs> I'm Eleanor, and I'm from Mill Valley, and I've been to Spirit Rock many times, but never to be with you. Well, I'm happy that and you're here. I've been meaning to for 
<laughs> Good. Ever. Thank you. Hi, my name is Dina, and I'm from San Anselmo. It's not far. And my friend encouraged me to come today, so thank you. Dina. My mother-in-law was Dina, the same mother-in-law that used to call in the morning and say, are you all right? <laughs> I, why, did, was it, what kind of meditation did you start to do? Um, I did, what did I go? Um, Green Gulch, and we did, it was a day along with the, um, on using meditation to uh, ease anxiety. Ease anxiety. Great. Green Gulch is lovely. It is Zen, which is uh, certainly part of the Buddhist lineages and uh, sometime we'll talk about that and uh, uh, it uh, it's good for anxiety maybe there'll be a way in which we'll talk about it sometime certainly the anxiety of being presented with uh oh now I have this which I didn't have before and how am I going to do that there are lots of things that startle the mind into anxiety some people don't get anxious anybody here doesn't get anxious <laughs> somebody told me yesterday I can't even it's such a rare thing somebody said to me oh I said that well, I said to a, a friend of mine who is 92 years old and living by herself in her own home on the top of a remote mountaintop in Ross who I was visiting and I said uh, do you ever feel anxious here being on your own limited mobility so she pushes herself around in a walker on a walker she said, no, why would I be anxious? So, some people might be anxious under those circumstances, but she said, no, that's not my, been my thing. So, it, it is wonderful. <laughs> How many people would like to have that? <laughs> What's your name? I'm glad you're here. Did you come the back way or did you come down the freeway? Uh, the way. Oh, it's lovely. Yeah. It's a good way to start. Did anybody notice the field, of, anybody that came up to Francis Drake this morning, did you notice in that whole field of black cows, there's one orange cow standing this morning? Did, what, did you think about that? How did that you know? <laughs> Thank you for being here. I'm glad you're here. Henry Moody of Ross, I appreciate your introductory message on the joy that we can all derive from caring about other people. Yeah. That, thank you, Henry. It's a, if you're busy caring about other people, of you know, it 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 relieves you from the other occupation, which is caring for yourself all the time, which is tedious and uh, endless. Uh,
<laughs> I hope I encouraged you. Everybody here will know that I have said many times this year, I'm taking a break from the news, and then I have gotten, I have fallen off the wagon many times, back onto somebody else's news and then my own. But honestly, I, I, I was feeling so toxic last week, I thought, well, I'll, uh, maybe I'll move over to um, NPR or something like that, because it's not so much, the news is upsetting, and cable news presents it in a way that's designed, don't go away so we can tell you how the hurricane is and make you more on edge. So I don't want to do that. Yeah. Well, good, good. Well, I'm well, welcome, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Well, we'll do some right now after we finish meeting the rest of us. Thank you. Well, come anytime. One of the things that I really like about Wednesday morning is it's always, there's always something here on Wednesday. We are always here. Mostly it's myself and Donald Rothberg when I'm not here. And every once in a while it's Tony, not Tony, Tony the boy, not the girl, uh, uh, who, who's here. Or Heidi is here. Um, mostly it's Donald and myself. But it's, if it's Wednesday and it's not Christmas Day, then we're here which I feel very good about because it's the uh, oldest established. <laughs> it's the, uh, no, I, I was, I was, now I got diverted by the oldest established permanent floating, permanent floating crap game in New York. <laughs> Thank you. Because I, I knew when I said oldest established, it came out of somewhere. Thank you for reminding me. That's from Guys and Dolls. Thank you very much. Okay, now, who are you? I'm really glad you're here.
Well, I'm so glad. San Bruno, you have to come through all the traffic, so good for you. Well, I'm very glad you're here, Jess. Okay, take a breath. What I'd like to do on behalf of all of us, and particularly on behalf of those people who are newly establishing meditation practices, is I'd like to say a few sentences about what's a meditation. There's so many different kinds. And then for us to practice together a number of different techniques. So first of all, I want to say that if you look up meditation uh, for its roots in a dictionary, you'll find that it comes from uh, Latin meditare, and that its uh, meaning is to put your attention on something. It doesn't say what to put the attention on, but it, it, it suggests that it's the intentional uh, placement of attention so that people will say, I meditate on a candle flame, I meditate on my breath, I meditate on the sensations in my body as I move them in yogic postures, I meditate on a phrase that was given to me by my guru, I meditate on um, the feelings in my body uh, that arise and pass away in different parts. If I'm awake to the sensations in my body, I meditate on the passing states of my mind, I meditate on the arising and passing of phenomena in general and sometimes the breath in particular. There are lots of different techniques. The techniques, and many of them, except for the candle flame thing, will find themselves, will, it, it will, uh, as far as I know anyway, are, can, are part of different Buddhist traditions as well. Most meditations have as their... Um, um, the hope for res- result, um, the balancing of the mind, the comforting of the mind, the soothing of the mind, the consolidating of the mind, the concentration of the mind, at the same time that it establishes keen awareness in the mind. So the idea is for the mind to relax, and certainly uh, uh, one hopes that the mind and body will relax and there's a certain amount of uh, ease. And at the same time, that there's enough attention in the, in the sense of alertness to what's going on so that the body doesn't fall asleep, the mind doesn't fall asleep. So it's how to be really relaxed, really at ease, and alert. There are books called Tranquil and Alert, which is what we are trying to do. Sometimes we get tranquil and fall asleep. Sometimes it's hard to be tranquil. Uh, Yesterday I was teaching a class in which I said, uh, because the question was, how can I be tranquil? And in in these days, when every brief moment passes, we get a new breaking news and a new breaking news and a new insult to the mind and a new startle. Can't be tranquil. And so what I said, okay, I'm going to change it from tranquil. Forget about no tranquil, don't do calm and alert. Let's do balanced and alert. Balanced and alert you can do when you're not tranquil. You can think about it and 
I haven't finished listening to the news for a while now because it's hard to stay balanced because it startles you all the time. But on a highway, it's really crowded and lots of cars in and out and you're late for your appointment at the same time. You don't want to be tranquil, but you want to be balanced and alert. Balanced and alert. Sometimes I say that to myself while driving. Okay, you are alert and at ease or at ease and alert so that it's not that kind of alert, it's alert. Vipassana meditation translates the word vipassana, which is what the word mindfulness is translated from, actually means seeing clearly. And so it's to be awake enough to see clearly what's happening and balanced enough to not be thrown over by it and energetic enough to be able to make some action as a result of it. It's not to be passive. In these days, we are really called upon to be balanced enough to be able to know what's coming up, to be able to judge what would be helpful for myself and other people and to make that move. That's what it's about. So we'll start this way. Sit in a way that's, uh, well, one of my friends says dignified. I like that. Sit in a way that's dignified. And be at ease in that dignified sitting. I think they mean sit with a spine that's uh, pretty erect so that when your breath goes in and out, it just by itself goes in and out most easily. But dignified sounds so good, I like to say it. So sit dignified. Your hands can be holding hands on your thighs, however way you want that's comfortable for you. Your feet can be however way you want. Sometimes people say they both have to be flat on the floor. I don't find that to be so necessary. So they can be however they are. For a few minutes, I won't say another instruction other than just rest in this moment
I often feel, and maybe you do, how pleasant it is to sit in a room of quiet people as I don't feel alone but I don't have anything to do. Don't need to process any thoughts. And I'm supported by community. Without any effort at all on anybody's part, we continue to hear, even in a quiet room, the sounds of people sometimes breathing near you, or people cough or sneeze or the door opens or closes. There are little sounds. Nothing is problematic, not the sound of anything. Really, the deep understanding is nothing by itself is problematic. The response to what's happening sometimes is problematic. Sometimes when there's suddenly a sound, we're startled. But that's not problematic if we sit quietly. The startle goes away. If your body feels well, if it's not in any way hurting at this time, there isn't any pain in your body. If you're not hungry or thirsty, probably the predominant feeling that you're aware of is that of breath coming into your body and going out. I actually don't feel so much the breath coming in as I do feel my body moving to accommodate it. Some people feel more the actual breath itself in their nostrils. I feel like my shoulders move up and my arms move out to the side and my back presses against the back of the chair. And I feel that it happens in a rhythmic way. Breath comes in and goes out. And my body expands to accommodate it and then relaxes. There's something about rhythmicity, something happening in a rhythmic way that is consoling to the nervous system. Maybe that's why babies like to be rocked. Probably you notice 
and I'll be quiet for a few minutes so you can really notice that left to its own devices your breath will slow down a little bit and the next breath won't initiate itself quite so fast or even go out quite so fast be like a space between the in-breath and the out-breath you don't need to do anything in order to be breathed when you sleep the world breathes you the atmosphere around us breathes us So I'll be quiet. We can all be breathed by the atmosphere around us and soothed by the quiet of the room. In five or six minutes, I'll add another instruction.
in these next minutes of sitting. As you rest in the breath coming in and coming out, perhaps you can really bring your attention to all the parts of your body, not all of them so reflective of the breath coming in and out. For example, I just noticed that uh, the, the face, the skin on my face is cooled. It doesn't have clothing on it. It must be cooler in the room than I realized before. It's a pleasant coolness. And that there's a, a kind of a breeze over it, so maybe the cooling system is on. But there's a pleasantness about the coolness on the parts of my body that are exposed to it. So thinking about bringing to mind what's pleasant in this moment. And starting with what's pleasant in my physical situation. And maybe what's not pleasant in my physical situation. And it's not so much to fix anything, just to notice this and that and see if the noticer, if the um, faculty of awareness stays bright and alert. So my body is nicely, sweetly cool. And maybe my back is hurting a little bit. Maybe there's a little bit of pain. But really maintaining the awareness of this is happening and that's happening. And it's just happening. I'm okay. My mind is not upset. My mind is okay.
in these last moments that we sit together quietly, appreciating as we breathe out and in, or as we are all breathed in and out, which is really what's happening. Aware as you can be of the pleasant and the unpleasant in this situation. Having the intention to maintain as balanced a mind, as balanced an awareness as is possible. Here I am, and it's okay. This is happening, and I'm okay. That's not a formal mantra, but it's a workable one. For the people who are new here today, uh, what we normally do before we end this period of personal contemplation and we enter into our shared space of talking and learning together is we use the quiet and the companionship of a community to mention whoever wants to mention, whoever's in their mind these days for uh, particular reasons, reasons of um, one of the 10,000 joys of life, or one of the 10,000 woes, which is what the Buddha called it, people in special, extraordinary celebratory mode and people in more difficult mode. And it's become a way to uh, say the first name of the person and their relationship to you and what's happening. It's a way of learning that so many things happen to everybody. In this particular week, I'm thinking of my granddaughter, Leah, and her new husband, Matt, who got married two days ago in a ceremony at which nothing went wrong at all. Of all the things that can happen, not only did nothing go wrong at all, but the weather was perfect, the temperature was perfect, everybody's health was perfect, the things they said to each other were great, and everybody was uplifted by it. May they continue to have a life that's as full of joy as could possibly be. And I'm also thinking of my friends Bahira and Shaya, who are living in um, 
the Panhandle in Gainesboro, uh, Gainesville, Florida. Not so in the middle of the line of the hurricane, but near it. And since they are neither of them young or in great physical ability, I hope that it passes by as securely for them as they can be. And also, I'm very happy that my friend Tony is here this morning. And may she be well for coming and for going and with the publication of her new book. So you can add now who you are thinking about today. You do it whenever you feel like it. my girlfriend Lisa who is about to embark on a kayaking journey from LA to Cabo
son Eli, who's going through some personal challenges and relationship challenges. I trust that he'll get through it partially because you've blessed him with his time. May all the people that we mentioned and all the people that we thought of and didn't mention out loud, may everyone who's weathering some period of difficulty in their life be supported and comforted by people who care about them. May everyone who's celebrating um, a good report and a good MRI and a healthy enough body to travel and a good end to a physical challenge. May they have people who will celebrate and support with them. And may all of us, with all the people that we know and care about, may we help them to celebrate and to accommodate. May we console May we keep each other company in a really good way. May our dedication to that create peace in our own minds and peace in our proximal communities. And may it spread in all the work that we do and all the people that we're with. Say something. Let's see if your microphone is on. Oh, all right. I don't think it is. I can't. He's going to fix you. Okay. He's going to fix you. All the way here, I thought I'd be going to the old bungalow, as I think of it. (laughs) And then my husband Tony said, oh, no. Oh, I've never you want this there. up here? It's not. It's not where it should be. There you go. Whatever you need to do is fine. Do you know? Okay. Uh, Can I put a piece of tape on your sheet? Whatever you want. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm used to being doctored. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for being startled uh, by the beauty of this place. You know the my. Um, okay, we can try that. Okay. I had mentioned earlier, in, uh, before you arrived, about a friend of mine who is 92 and lives by herself and is uh, 
not in, in her health is okay. Her mobility is quite limited, yeah. so she can't come to class. And I brought her one day, and she came up with her. I, either I brought her in with a wheelchair or a walker or something. I brought her in here, and she said, "Well, you don't have to have any class in here. You could just bring people in here, and they could just sit here, and they'll feel better by sitting in here." <laughs> so, and of course, uh, the the some people some people here. Who knows, Tony? This is Tony the girl. Tony the boy is in the back. So if you know him, you can wave to him in the back. He's there. <laughs> I'm very happy that you're here. I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> this is a special place to me. So I thought, because we didn't have a plan of uh, other than we would talk, I, I was. I, you can see I have all that kind of... I had, a, I had a few particular questions that I sure. wanted to ask you about the new book because there's no question that I said all kinds of laudatory things. I'm not even going to go through your whole resume. I should have gone through your whole resume. I should have said, no, you, because I want you to, in the next several minutes, tell the people who never heard about you and don't know you at all, don't even know Tony, I want you to say, 15 years, it wasn't 15 years ago. That I first came here? No, that you got sick. 17 years. 17 years. So starting with the paragraph that says, 17 years ago, I was a tenured law professor at UC Davis, and then just a story, pricey, of what happened to you. Okay. So in May of 2001, a bit over 17 years ago, um, I had recently stepped down at UC Davis Law as the dean of students. That, that's how I got so gray. <laughs> I, <laughs> I had uh, been in that position for six years and in um, 1998 returned to teaching, which I had never appreciated as much as when I went back. And so uh, my children had gone off to college and Tony and I, we've been married over 50 years. So it wasn't just the same name that I don't think that uh, led to the longevity. Um, and I was at a wonderful place in my life and uh, because I was so happy to be back in the classroom and our children were doing okay. And Tony and I took a trip to Paris, which was a big thing for us. We tended to go to Hawaii. That was our place. And I rented a small studio apartment and we would just spend three weeks in there and immerse ourselves in the life of the city. And the second day there, I woke up feeling sick. And uh, a lot of acute symptoms, but I thought this has to be jet lag. And so I suggested we go, go to a movie mainly because I didn't want to alarm Tony and I wanted to examine what was going on with me. And uh, I realized at that movie that I was indeed sick. And so we treated it, which it was at the time, as a a viral infection, uh, sore throat, all of, of those symptoms. But I couldn't go out. And so... Tony would go out and come back and check at me, check on me at noon, and then go out, which is not um, 
I'm better at going out alone than he is. This was not something he enjoyed. And days would go by and we'd say, well, that's okay. Instead of three weeks in Paris, we'll have two weeks. And then two weeks became one week. And I did eventually go to a doctor and she said, I think it's a viral infection, but I'll give you antibiotics anyway. And when I got home, I actually thought I had recovered. Um, I recovered enough to come to this, the treasured July retreat with Joseph and Sharon coming from the East Coast and sometimes Kamala Masters was with them, a host of teachers. And I came to that retreat in July of 2001 and realized, and on the third day I woke up sick but in a different way without the acute symptoms, but really unable to get out of bed. This, it was like, I felt like I was hit by a Mack truck. Um, I just had no juice, no energy. And I stayed at the retreat. I stayed in my room except for making my way down the hill at noon because my yoga yogi job was putting away the food after meals and I just felt obligated to do that. So once a day I would come down and go back up. And I actually started writing about it, which is in the second chapter of the book, um, some of the notes I had made while I was on that retreat. And I never got better. I came home, I called the dean because I was set to teach. Our classes start in August because we're on the semester system. And we agreed to wait a bit and I wound up taking that semester off. And I, um, I've been sick for 17 years. I, I'm a little better than I was maybe the first two years when I could, when it was really, I couldn't get out of bed. I wouldn't have been able to even come here. But it settled into this, um, I call it the flu without the fever. And so sometimes people call it chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis. But Fatigue is only one of the symptoms. Um, uh, I have that, all that feeling you have when you have flu, where you can't be up for long without lying down. I I was lying down in the car on the way here. And so uh, I entered into a pretty dark period in my life, uh, which Sylvia was a a tremendous help to me during that time. she would call and she would say, this is your body that's sick, not your mind. And Because I, I blamed myself. I thought there was something... I would go to bed at night and will myself to get better, and I couldn't. And I had, at that time, been a practicing Buddhist for 10 years. So we add the 17, and now it's 27. But I put aside the Buddhist teachings. I was in too much in a state of panic, perhaps, or worry. But after about five years, 
Um, those teachings came back into my life. And from my bed, I started to write. And the reason my first book is called How to Be Sick, which is such an unusual <laughs> title, is because I actually began it as a way to help myself. I pulled my laptop over and I opened a Word document and said, wrote, How to Be Sick. And I started writing using the Buddha's guidance, whether it be the Noble Truths or the Three Marks of Experience or the Brahma Viharas or Mindfulness. I used what I had learned and also got books out of my shelf, off my shelves. I bought a lot of books. And out of that created really what I thought was for myself, something for myself, but when I showed it, to some other people, they said, that's a book. And Sylvia helped me find a publisher. And now I've written three books, <laughs> all from the bed. And well, now I'm going to say three and a half because the first book just came out in a second edition. My publisher asked me if I would do it. And at first I thought no. But when I looked it over, I realized I had a lot to revise or say better or put in that was new. So that's, that's me. That's, <laughs> or that's, that's something about you. That's something about me. <laughs> I, have, I want to talk a little bit about the new book. Mm -hmm. But I, want to, I wanted to ask you, because I remember being very impressed with this after the first book had come out, with how many people wrote to you and that your surprise at the prevalence of indisposition in its many ways that's a, it's a it's a light word to use like you were indisposed but yeah it, like it's not it's not weighty enough but yeah i i knew nothing about chronic illness or chronic pain before this happened and I didn't realize, just listening to those of you who brought to mind people you're thinking of, that shows us right there, that uh, this is part of life. And one of the things that I actually did in the second edition was to rewrite the chapter that is the first and second noble truths. And... Um, I started to describe, you know, in the first noble truth, the Buddha has this list of birth, aging, illness, death, getting what you want, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, losing those you cherish. And I looked at that list and realized illness is on it. And so illness and pain, physical illness and pain, and mental illness are a normal, are a natural phenomenon, a natural part of the human life cycle. They're on that list. And so it helps to be, be aware of that and have some tools to help you through it. The other thing that you just said that's on the list is getting what you don't want. Yeah. Getting what because you don't Because when I, when I read the new edition, I find it always brings tears to my eyes of that night that Tony came home and you both said, tell that story. That's such a... Oh, I, well, I hope this is the right story. He, uh, you know, I'm talking about myself, but this has been as hard on him as it has been on me 
maybe even harder because he's lost his best friend out there in the world. So he's pretty much on his own. And um, one night he came into the bedroom and uh, I said, I wish I weren't sick. Is this what you're referring to? Either said, I wish I wasn't sick or I I hate this illness. (laughs) No, okay. I said, um, I wish I weren't sick. And Tony said, I wish you weren't sick. And we started to laugh because we had said that to each other so many times. And that was the moment of opening to it for us. It was like, Okay, and one of us said, well, okay, that got said. Yeah. <laughs> now we move on. I find that so, yeah. I, that's like a pivot point in the whole thing. And I was thinking about mm-hmm. how many people have something going on and then pretend it's not or put off that it's not. And finally they say, you know what, I have this. Yeah, I, I pretended it wasn't going on. I actually forced myself to go back to work part-time for about a year and a half. The uh, dean was very accommodating and gave me, I only taught one class, and Tony was actually teaching, uh, sorry, worked in a, in a different city than Davis. He worked in Woodland, which is the county seat, which 20 minutes away. He would drive to our house. I'd get off the bed. He'd drive me to the law school, which was about 10 minutes away, drop me off, I would teach my class, he would pick me up, drive me home, and I'd get back into the bed. And to this day, I don't know whether that exacerbated or, or interfered with my ability to get my immune system back on track. The, doc- the doctors think that this virus caused some kind of dysfunction in my immune system and that it reads me as constantly sick which and you know I've I've learned so much and one thing I've learned is that when you have a virus or a bacteria that's not what makes you feel bad it's the body fighting it off with producing cytokines that fight the virus and they the medical community calls it the sickness response and that's what makes you feel sick and it's a good thing if it you feel sick and then you get better. So um, I forced myself back to work and that because I was in denial. Who gets sick and who gets a seemingly ordinary viral infection and doesn't get better? And my colleagues at the law school, they felt the same way. They would see me and say, so you're better now or are you better yet? So there was a a lot of denial that increased, that added mental suffering to the physical suffering. And really what this book is about is um, how to ease that mental suffering. Um, Which of course can exacerbate physical suffering. I'm sure you've all had that experience because you get tense mentally and it can 
Uh, yeah. So when you told me about the numbers of people who are now, you have the biggest online community, I think, alas. <laughs> well, Can you tell me something like 90-something, million 90-something? Oh, no, no, it's about uh, 700,000 people on a Facebook page that my daughter set up for me. That's, wait a minute, wait a minute. Your Facebook page has 750,000? It's not a personal page. It's, they, <laughs> Facebook has personal pages and then they have... You don't pay for it, but it's like a, it's a page like Nike would have. So I have a page, and I think you have one, maybe. It's called Tony Bernhard Author, as opposed to a personal page, which I have with my children. I know there's a lot of mixed reactions to Facebook, but when you're pretty much bedbound like I am, it's a... Uh, it can be a wonderful thing. So you have 750,000 people writing to you? On, no. I have about <laughs> 750 people on that page. But what has happened is that it's become an international page in the sense that um, I do... I, it's not just that I've had... I've had several thousand people write to me after they read my books... And they send me an email. They can get my email address off a website that my daughter made for me. And um, those emails come from all over the world. I had a about four months ago, a pharmacist in Iraq wrote to me and asked how she could get my book. And I have people write to me from Russia and India and, of course, Europe. And um, so that's really been, that's been wonderful to, to feel that I've been able to reach, to think of the world as one, as my community. Um, I'd like to say that uh, it's made worth it's made being sick the last 17 years worth it. Once in a while, I have that thought. But if I'm honest, I would say I wish it hadn't happened. But it's made what it, the fact that it turned out that I could write in a conversational, personal voice, which I didn't know I had, um, has, made, has made this okay because it's allowed me to reach people everywhere. And that's a wonderful feeling. Oh, I'm, really, I'm really very touched by the yeah. fact that you answer those letters to people. I do. Um, I, I will say, once in a while, I get a kooky one. Like, <coughs> you need to engage in soul retrieval. That's one of my favorite ones. And I... I don't always answer those, but if someone writes to me because they've read one of my books, I just feel obligated to write back. And sometimes it's just a very simple response, but there are people who write to me who are in tremendous uh, mental pain. And even some who will talk about ending their lives. And so I, I many, several years ago, consulted with a suicide uh, counselor so that I would know, and I write back to those people right away. 
Um, other people, it may take me a couple weeks. But I just feel if they're going to take the time, and I'm on the bed anyway, I do write back to them. And I sometimes my husband and my daughter and my son say, you know, you really ought to take that email off your website. But I, I haven't. Oh, uh, we have been talking about... Uh, this morning it came up again before you arrived and recently uh, really talking about what uplifts the soul in these terrible yeah. turmoil times and always coming down to being of service to other people lifts yes. up the soul it okay. just somehow one more thing that I can do for one more person keeps some moment of liveliness alive in my mind yeah especially in this time of what I think of as this increasing tribalism when people write to me I don't know anything about their politics I mean I have I do once in a while I I have it's a it I thought I was writing a book for Buddhists but I would say maybe they're 20% of my readers. It turned out there was such a need for a general book on chronic illness. People will often buy a book relating to their particular illness. So I have, I get notes from people of all faiths or no faith. And um, I, I love that, that, this it crosses those boundaries that seem to be becoming more rigid today. And it is, nonetheless, it's not a Buddhist primer, but it is a Buddhist primer. Mm-hmm. And the, really the noble truths and the, uh, and the Brahma Viharas. Yeah. I had a particular question that, sure. because I, it says uh, the new and updated. Yeah. And I, I was measuring this morning on well, my... It is, on my it's, it's definitely it's bigger, thicker. It's definitely, definitely it's thicker. About 25 to 30% I'm bigger, measured, I think. I measured, and I, I, I venture so far as to yeah. say your writing has even become more masterful. I really loved it. I oh. really... I, you know, I didn't read page by well, page together, but I thought it was really very, very good. It, it seemed like it had more... I don't, you've always been upfront about yourself in it, but maybe a little bit more upfront about some of the pain along. I, one page yeah. I, I really, I thought it had a lot more on compassion in it. Well, it it did, and one when I write about compassion, it's mostly self compassion, because people often, a lot of people find it easy to. Uh, feel uh, compassion for others and try to alleviate their suffering but they don't they don't feel that for themselves they're very judge, judgmental and they've got the strong inner critic I, I added a whole thing in here on the inner critic and it's interesting to go back to people who write to me if I were to say I haven't done the check marks but I just know that the most a common theme of what they write is self-compassion, that they, until they read my book, they didn't realize that they should be treating themselves kindly over what happened Mm. instead of blaming themselves. 
and think it was their fault. You know what, sweetheart? So, yeah. Do you like to read from your book? Sure. Okay. So here's this one page, because I read it, and it, it, it so moved me. It's, a, it's an ordinary order. I was in pain in my body reading it, and I was so. And it ends wonderfully about compassion for yourself. Oh, Read this okay. one. Okay. Um, Maybe it isn't the one you would have picked for yourself. Well, I'm just starting trying to here. Orient where I am. It must be the compassion. It is chapter. the compassion okay. chapter. It's the end of so, it. So you want me to read just to the end of there? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So this is the end of the chapter on compassion. Before I learned to cultivate compassion for myself as a chronically ill person, I passively accepted whatever happened. No matter how intense my suffering, I took no action to alleviate it because I blamed myself for being sick. I recall, for example, an appointment I had with an ear, nose, and throat specialist in the fall of 2001. Tony remembers this well to evaluate a persistent hoarseness that was a feature of the acute phase of the illness. I dragged myself out of bed for Tony to drive us to the clinic, only to find we had to wait three hours to be seen. I tried, this is UC Davis Med Center, which is also the county med center for the indigent, so that's one reason why the clinics are always very crowded. Um, We had to wait three hours to be seen. I tried every position I could think of to turn the waiting room chair into a reclining piece of furniture. I slumped down on my back. I slumped down on my side. Then I tried to use the chair as a bed, bending my knees to get my feet up on it and laying the middle part of my body over the hard armrest and my head on Tony's lap. The physical pain and discomfort was matched by the mental suffering that arose from blaming myself for being sick and subjecting not just me, but also Tony to this misery. The memory is still vivid. 17 years ago. (laughs) I reread it yesterday. I was hurting in my body while I was reading it. And having such... Anyway, go ahead. Six years later... I was taking an antiviral, I've tried a lot of treatments, under the supervision of an infectious disease doctor. This was a doctor at Stanford, actually. On the two-hour drive from Davis to the infectious disease clinic, I could lie down in the back of our van, but the wait at the clinic was always longer than the time it took to get there. At the first appointment, I employed my usual techniques of first trying to turn an upright chair into a recliner and then trying to lie across Tony's lap. It took me weeks to recover from that trip. I dreaded the follow-up appointment. But at the second visit, having already begun to evoke compassion for myself as someone who is ill, after an hour of waiting... I calmly and politely told a staff person that I needed to lie down. To my surprise and relief, after a few minutes, she showed us to an empty room and said I could lie on the examining table until the doctor could see me. When I approached the staff person, I didn't complain, but neither was I passive. Instead, I took compassionate action on behalf of myself. I hope you'll start cultivating self-compassion 
this very minute. I'd like to close this chapter with a quotation often attributed to the Dalai Lama. My editor made me put in often attributed because she couldn't absolutely nail it down to the Dalai Lama. (laughs) Um, a A quotation often attributed to the Dalai Lama in which he tells us what can happen if we devote our lives to easing suffering in ourselves and others. If you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Anyway, I I thought the whole book was um, newly imbued with um, more stories that were compassion indicative. Is that... Yeah, well... I've also had a medical event since I wrote that first edition. I was diagnosed four years ago with breast cancer. And so this was after this book was published. And the good news is that I have been treated and my prognosis is good. I mean, who knows? But the prognosis is positive. But that was another something to add to what I was already having to deal with. And I think that that increased my commitment to the Dharma and to particularly the Brahma Viharas and um, to understanding what the Buddha meant in that list when he talked about uh, getting what you don't want. And, and I do talk about some of the new examples in the book because it's not an autobiographical book. I offer a practice and then I often tell an anecdote like I just read to you to illustrate it. And so I have added several about my experiences with, the, with breast cancer. And I, I think my writing got better, even better after that. It's like a kind of sanding down of all the rough edges and you're just left with I'm left with the life I have and I want to make the best of it and help others to the extent I can. That's what it comes down to. That last sentence, I'm left with the life I can, I have, and the best I can do, the most I can do is make the best of it. That is true for all of us. Whatever we've got. Whether you're sick or not. Whether you're sick sick or not. Yeah. Whether you're sick or not. So I thought that this might be a good time to ask you. First of all, do you have something else you really want to say? Otherwise, I'll ask people oh. Q&A. No, I'd love to answer questions. Um, if I... Yeah. Oh, I'm just... Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Anne reminds me that don't ask a question until you get a... You get a okay. Uh, Microphone. There you go. (laughs) That's an indisposition of old age. (laughs) Can I say one more? I do want to say one more thing. There, I was joking with Tony on the drive here. There are some people who didn't make the cut into the... (laughs) 
into the second edition, like Sarah Palin, who I used as an example in the meta chapter of The Difficult Person. I changed it to a more generic difficult person. Um, and so there... <laughs> And so uh, there, when I went through the book, one of the reasons I decided to do the updated version was that there were things I wanted to change. And so uh, I was going over with Tony. I came up with about a half a dozen people or ideas that, as I said, didn't make the cut but were replaced with other ones. Yeah, no, no, that's that's actually one of the uh, editorial things that I learned from one of my editors don't say anything that time binds the book. So, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unless it's something that you think is going to last a long time. Well, it's interesting because my, my editor, and Wisdom is pretty much a Buddhist press, to some extent they're reaching out, but he wanted to punch up some of that negative language about her, and I insisted on not because... Right. One of in in bringing to mind the difficult person, one of the things I've learned is that we we share some things. We wish the best for our children, yeah. and yeah, I, I, and not only that, we wish the best, for, but uh, I'm sure you would say this if I let you continue. If I have negative feelings, if I entertain negative feelings about people, my mind is polluted with negativity, and I feel worse. That, um, yes. I, which doesn't mean I have to think glorious things about them, yes. but to somehow reframe in a way not only for their behalf, but pri- primarily for my behalf. You know, yes, that's my, why. I, you know, my thoughts aren't going anywhere, anyway, anywhere, anyway. They're here, all of the thoughts. Yes, that's so. beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anybody ready to ask a question? There you go. There's one. Um, I want to appreciate, I appreciate your story about asking somebody Mm. with the compassion for yourself. My brother and I had eczema and atopic. And when we were little, um, I mean, it was all about ignoring, you know, and we would get so exhausted, autoimmune, exhausted, you know, a lot of things, and it almost became normal for me mm. to uh, not acknowledge it, not ask for help from other people. And so your book touches a lot, I think, with worldwide, with many cultures, um, in how you're approaching chronic illness, and it's a gift to hear you speak about that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah I do... I said I hear from people all over the world, and that is something they say that they talk about the stigma that was attached to maybe something they've been struggling with for thirty years, and how it was um, swept under the rug instead of revealed as a natural part of the human condition, and which then allows you to open to ways to. Uh, make your life better while you live with what you've got. Yeah. You have to wait for the mic. Thank you. <laughs> you get to hear yourself mic. <laughs> Thank you. Um, did you find, or uh, 
Um, as we know, uh, support doesn't come from all circles. So how did you handle those either friends, family members who might not have supported you in this journey of yours? That has happened. I'm uh, one of the sad parts of what's happened is that I'm no longer close to my brother. We're not formally estranged, but he lives right near here. And he and his wife are devoted to a certain approach to medicine and wanted me to try things. And I didn't always think that was in my best interests. And they have pretty much gone out of my life, as have some friends. And actually, the last chapter in the book is about friendships. And it's also about learning, about loneliness and learning the joys of solitude. But it's also about friendships. And I quote some of the people who've written to me and said things like, all my friends went missing. And so um, uh, what happened to me was that I was very bitter for the friend. This book healed me too because I was forced to work through things as I wrote it. And uh, I had several friends who disappeared from my life, who I thought of as close friends. Not several, but, you know, two or three. And um, I was very bitter about it. And then I realized that this was really about them, not about me. And I thought about one particular friend who has always had a terrible aversion to illness and the thought of death. And I, uh, uh, this is Margaret, Tony. And I realized that she wasn't coming around because she was too uncomfortable around me. And if I thought about it, I knew she wished me well. She, and probably felt bad about what she was doing, but mostly this realization that even the people who go missing, and I assume this of my brother too, they wish me the best. They just have their own demons and lives to live. And um, so it is a major, the, the issue of family and friends from again, from what I've learned from people writing to me, is a, is, a major, is a major one for people when they're struggling with their health. Um, pain, particularly pain conditions where family members just don't believe it because in the same way, I probably look fine to all of you, but I'm in some pain and I feel... <laughs> sicker than a dog. But I'm on adrenaline. So I'm glad to be here. I'll pay for it later. So that's okay. But people will say that so, sometimes their partners, so, partners often sometimes leave. Yeah, Partners will say, just get off the bed. If, or if you're that sick, why don't you go to the hospital? I mean, you know, uh, people who I look out at all of you, and you all look fine. But I'm sure some of you are uncomfortable physically. 
So um, what I've learned is, you in the same way you're, you, you, we're supposed to believe children when they tell us about uh, abuse, that kind of thing. You believe people when they tell you how they're feeling. And, um, and if you, and as the person who is suffering from illness or pain, um, work on getting to that point where you, where you see, it's a really an equanimity practice that people come and go from lives for lots of different reasons. And that can happen even if you're not sick, because maybe you disagree politically. So, People come and go and just um, embrace those who hang around. Did that answer your question? I was thinking also that maybe um, the uh, 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 maybe sometimes people feel guilty that they feel good and, and that they mm, uh, sure, they yeah. have regular lives in the world and mm. uh, and assuming that somehow you would maybe feel uneasy with the specter of them so well or something. That's a really good point. It's like survivor's guilt. Yes, yes. I think that's true. And I've had that illustrated with one of my friends, Dawn, who has stuck around and does a lot of traveling around the world. And I've said to her, Dawn, tell me, describe in detail that trip to Melbourne. Because she otherwise feels that it will make me feel bad. Mm. But I want to hear about it. It's my opportunity to go to Melbourne. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I think you're yeah. right. Yeah. I was like, oh, there's somebody over there. Go ahead. Um, similarly, to go off um, on, on what you were just talking about with relationships with others, I'm interested to hear on how you navigated your relationship with your husband because you mentioned that you've been with him for so long. Yeah. I can imagine the difficulty that it's been on both of you, on your relationship, on him as well. How have you stayed together? How have you mm-hmm. maintained your happiness and your love for each other through the difficult time that you've gone through? Well, uh, perhaps you don't really know what kind of commitment you have to each other until one of you needs the other one as a caregiver. I really didn't, I couldn't have told you 18 years ago what would happen if I got sick. And it's hard not to cry answering this and not so much about Tony and me, but about the people who write to me and say that their partners left. They just, and even there, I hope they can get to a point of no blame, of recognizing that some people were really not taught in this culture to be caregivers because we think everyone's just going to be healthy and then one day they'll get old, they'll be old and they'll die. But we don't realize that, I mean, I get letters from teenagers who are chronically ill and 20-year-olds. And, and so we're not, people aren't prepared to be caregivers. We could do a better job of helping partners realize that they might have to care for each other. So Tony was just thrown into that 
role without any experience because he was not, we didn't, we weren't caregivers for his parents. They were both gone, but we never had to be caregivers for, for them. And he's never let me down. He's just always there for me. Whatever I need, I, you know, I'm, I'm so it's, I just feel like the most fortunate person in the world to have him in my life. And that's how my life unfolded. It doesn't unfold that way for everyone. And I recognize that and my heart goes out to them. But that's what's happened with me and perhaps that's why I was even able to write the books because I had his support all the way. He read drafts of chapters and I thought that it was dedicated to him, was it not? It is. That's what I thought. Why don't you, you read the dedication? For Tony, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. I'm waiting for the mic to come to you. <laughs> there you go. Tony, I'm, I'm wondering what have people said to you that you have found supportive and what have people said to you that you have found not to be supportive just so mm-hmm. that would just kind of give me some yeah. thoughts on how to be around somebody with a chronic illness. Um. <laughs> The most, what I love hearing somebody say is, you look good. How do you really feel? It's that, and I understand when people stop at the you look good. So I'm not saying that's the wrong thing to say. But to have someone go that extra step deeper and recognize that how you look may not be how you feel, and this could be true if the issue is not illness, right? It's just you've got the, the blues very badly or you're upset about something either political or family related. So, um, and the other thing that's really helpful is when someone is um, aware of my limited energy, And I have a friend, Lynn, who comes to visit sometimes and she'll always say after a half hour, um, am I staying too long? Or something like that, which is so helpful because when people come to your house, I still haven't, I'm not a nervy person. And so I still don't have the nerve to say, it's been great, but I have to lie down. And actually, because of that, if Tony's home, he can see it in my face, and he will sometimes intercede in a gentle way. He'll say, he won't talk to the other person, but he'll say to me, how are you doing? Which kind of opens that door. So that's really helpful. 
Um, what's not helpful is uh, um, just all of the advice. The people, eh, I think my mic just fell off again. <laughs> uh, Use this one. Yeah. Oh, here, I'll yeah. hold it up. Is that That's okay? Good. That's good. Okay. Um, what's not helpful uh, is um, people who uh, want to tell me what I should do. You know, maybe you and Tony should move to another town. Um, I mean, it's like, uh, I know they're trying to be helpful, but it's been 17 years. I've tried a lot. Of, I've probably seen 20 specialists. I've tried everything that I think is reasonable. Something's made me worse, like that antiviral I was on. And so um, I would say if you have someone who is a friend who's chronically ill, don't offer advice unless they ask for it. Um, yeah. I could think of a lot more. But well, maybe maybe the mind. question I'm going to ask you right now yeah. is um, what would serve you best in terms of that big pile of books out oh. there and uh, your well. exiting? <laughs> what do you feel like in terms of uh, they're gonna. Those books are available for people buying. Yeah. Are you feeling up to signing them? Yes, because what happens in a situation like this, and I go into it fully aware, is that uh, I'm on adrenaline, and there will be payback for two or three days. But this is worth it to me, so I'm happy to finish answering questions and then they have put books out there and uh, it, I'm not here I mean I, I will sit there if anyone wants me to sign a book that they'd like so I'm here for you and it's too late already <laughs> the <laughs> adrenaline is pumping but thank you for asking. So, wait a minute Ace wants to ask you a question okay. <laughs> is this working Hi. Uh, two questions one do you have any idea of how many people are suffering as you are in the United States? And two, has there been any research of um, any proportion that, that has a, a possibility of making a mm. difference? Yes. You know, maybe, Tony, you remember the, the number two million comes to mind. And I can't remember if that's just the states or worldwide. Just the states, there's an estimate of 2 million. And here's the problem. The medical, um, the medical community doesn't understand, and it's not their fault, it, the immune system is a bit of a mystery. It's not like you, you can't say, well, here's my calf. <laughs> it's, um, it's uncharted territory to a large extent. And... So that's one problem. And the other problem in terms of research money is that the illness has... Um, I think there are several different subsets of immune system problems. Probably some people here with an auto, autoimmune. There are maybe a dozen different autoimmune diseases where the immune system basically erroneously t attacks some part of your body, um, seeing it as a foreign agent. And so um, 
we need to have research money allocated to investigating what is going on in the immune system. One infectious disease doctor said to me, it's as if it went on in Paris and it's never gone off. And he got up and he went to the wall and he took the light switch and he said, I wish we had a reset button. And he turned the light off and turned it on. So it's a double, there are three problems. The name trivializes the illness. Um, the immune system is very little, is very poorly understood. And um, research money, there's more, this is the typical example given, more money is allocated to male pattern baldness than to um, this illness. <laughs> I, I did. I purposely did. <laughs> so now I've made you happy, haven't I? <laughs> Ring the bell. First, say say okay. may all please say say a closing in, intention and ring the bell because some people have to leave at noon. Okay. Uh, thank you all for listening and. Um, May you take good care of each other. There, and and so that's the first. Oh, ring it again. It's got a good sound. Do it. There you go. And we don't often have applause in here anyway. It's not a, you know, it's not a thing that we do. But uh, what a good thing that you did by being here. I know a lot of people here, and I know a lot of people here who have similar situations. Yours is uniquely yours, but there are other people with other things. So if this was your first time here or your nth time here, uh, I'll see you when I'm back the next time, which is sometime... November 7th. That's when we'll see each other. And um, Thank you, Sylvia. What a, what a pleasure. Part, just seeing Sylvia <laughs> makes it worth coming. <laughs> uh, that's, I'm really glad that you did it. Let me turn myself off so everybody doesn't... I think I've taken... Oh, this is very interesting thought when you were saying... Feeling guilt. Yes. I had breast cancer in my um, third grade. I had twin boys. They were uh-huh. third grade, and he was best friends with the women who also got breast cancer at the same time, and they were. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.